Welcome to the Thunderstock Show, a collection of valuable brainstorms to enhance your life, liberty, and pursuit of property. Today's episode, I have a very special guest. Thank you, my friend and neighbor, Nell Tice, for the introduction. Tim Calise. Did I say that right? You did. Perfect, Ross. Yes, exactly Perfect. right. Tim is a versatile entrepreneur, finance expert, podcast host of Leveling the Field, and has also founded successful tech fitness ventures, raised several hundred million, no big deal, for a first hedge fund. Uh, it took him a long time, by age of 25. And for some of you, <laughs> I say that in jest. And uh, for some of you that um, know me, I've heard me talk about Alex Ramosi. He co-developed Allen, which is an AI-driven SaaS platform. Uh, yeah, so Tim, welcome to the Thundersock Show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I admitted to Tim off air that during yard work yesterday, I listened to much of his podcast. So I I want to start with the introduction of, which I know the answer to, but at what age and what situation got you into entrepreneurship and how did you kind of get to this, to play the game? Yeah. So I, uh, my, my father, I grew up in New York. My, my dad was actually uh, in the finance industry. And so you know, my early recollections, you know, as, as a young kid, right, you you kind of emulate what's around you. And my dad put on the suit and tie and, you know, went off to the train and, you know, did that whole deal. Uh, and so to the great embarrassment of my two sisters, uh, I was the, the kid who brought a briefcase to school in middle school. Uh, and I guess I had like the early twinklings of some like uh, self-assurance or something like that, because I couldn't imagine that got me many, uh, you know, <laughs> many cool friends. Right. Um, but I knew I always, I love numbers. I love math and things like that. And I, my dad, uh, you know, kind of leading the way I knew I wanted to be in kind of business in general. Uh, and that led me to right out of college. Uh, I was working for uh, a company called Solomon Smith Barney, which no longer exists, but basically a brokerage firm. Uh, and I was answering phones and kind of running errands and stuff like that. And I, I just remember there was a time where I, I realized, I asked myself the question, you know, can I see myself doing this, you know, for another 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And I really couldn't. Uh, and I was so lucky that I had, you know, a great boss and mentor at the time. I walked into his office and I said, you know, this world kind of isn't, I'm not long for it, um, but I, I really want to be on the other end of the phone. Like, how mm. do I get on that end of the phone? And he's like, I know someone who, you know, is kind of, trying to build something and you're an entrepreneurial guy. Uh, and I found a, a couple of companies in college. He goes, yeah. you know, why don't I connect you guys and see if it goes anywhere? Uh, and so as a kid from New York, I ended up packing up all my worldly possessions and driving my used Chevy Blazer down to Birmingham, Alabama, of all places, uh, where we said, you know what, we're going to make a go of this thing. And we had a little bit of money to start with. Uh, we were starting a, an investment company. Uh, and in that world, you're you're kind of gauged by the assets that you manage. Assets under management is the mm -hmm. is the metric. And we started with like less than a million dollars, which is very small in that world. Yeah. Uh, and over the next couple of years, I crisscrossed the country and probably equal parts drive and naivete. Uh, we <laughs> ended up raising over three hundred twenty five million dollars uh, from various investors, small all the way up to the largest institutions in the country. Uh, and so at 25, we hit about 335 million in, in assets. And then in October of 2007, not to date myself, uh, we decided we were going to give it all back. And so it was one of the really seminal moments in my professional career 
where you know you kind of give up a seven-figure fee stream, uh, but we did it for the right reasons. And, and then 2008, the market crashed, and you know the the market call that we made looked pretty pretty smart at the, uh, in in hindsight. But uh, yeah, it was oh, it was man. a great kind of ver- you know kind of first season of my life. Uh, but I always had that itch. You know, I I had the lemonade stand and things like that, um, and then always found problems that I thought I could be creative in solving. And so, so it's, I think it's in my blood. There's a couple of things. First of all, that's a, I love that story so much. It, I think a common theme, um, you know, you went to college at uh, George Mason, correct? Uh, George Washington University. George Washington. Yeah. DC. Right. yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I remember hearing a story that at 19, you saw there was a gap in the market for after hours. Was it like convenience? Yeah. And you just sort of were like, Hey, you know, we have an idea. And then within 24 hours or whatever it was, you had a buddy that created a website. So the what one thing I want to touch on is between idea to action of just like having the correct core beliefs of like, yeah, let's just try, right? Like not having to fear to try is remarkable. And then finding your your real estate, you just kind of like knocked on the door and asked, and you're like, Oh, I don't expect a yes, but you're pleased. And it, it sounds like that happened again. When you're like, hey, hey, boss, like I kind of want to do this. Oh, sure, let me like help you out. Like the universe just opens doors when you have the right beliefs and take the right action, as evidenced by those two stories uh, that you told. But um, for those of you that are that are listening that don't necessarily know the finance world, and, and I got into finance in my later twenties, so I learned all of this like drinking from the fire hose. But you started a hedge hedge fund, correct? I did. I did. So a hedge fund is a really fancy term that you'll hear kind of thrown around for. We basically took money from investors mm-hmm. and made decisions about how to allocate and invest that money in in primarily U.S. like stocks and things like that. Yeah. So for anyone listening that watches HBO, think of the show Billions. That is what that is what they do. Uh, there are typically three institutional types of uh, finance markets that do what that what that is, uh, whether that's you know VC or venture capital, uh, hedge funds or private equity. Um, they kind of touch businesses at different sizes, different stages of their life cycle. Uh, hedge funds typically, like um, Tim Tim mentioned, you know large assets under management, think of like larger businesses that are at a more mature stage at that time. And uh, one of the things I find interesting is, you know, you said you exited in 2007 and you're like, all right, time for a new chapter. Were there, what were the signals and thoughts and beliefs leading up to that exit that made you say, you know what, I'm ready to switch gears. And, uh, you know, how much of that was luck versus like, uh, versus anything else? I don't know what the word would be. Yeah. So an overarching theme that I would point out that I have been probably, uh, it wasn't a, a conscious decision, but it has been a theme throughout my life. It's been a kind of a common thread is really knowing what my zone of genius is. Like, what am I good at? Mm-hmm. And trying my darndest to just stay there. Because I think in general, we get in trouble when we kind of go outside, you know, we go a little far over our skis and and then life and the universe kind of knocks you back down, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason why that's relevant is because in our fund, uh, when you raise money like that, you have just like every business, you have a value proposition and you have an avatar, like you have a core ideal customer, right? Mm -hmm. Our value proposition 
was we were a consistent single, you know, single base hit type strategy. We are not the bet it all on red and it's either going to, you know, double, triple, quadruple, whatever, or it's going to zero. We were the, the little engine that could. And the reason why that's important is because our avatar were high net worth individuals whose retirement money we were managing. So they had worked really hard to build this and like preserving that money was mm -hmm. critically important to them. And if we could do that, we would hold on to, to the capital that we had, right? That we were entrusted with. The other mm -hmm. side, when you get bigger, we ended up aligning ourselves with large institutions like insurance companies. So like when you write the check for your premium and they don't need the money right now, they go and invest it. Well, you can imagine that they need to make sure they don't lose that money. So they like little, you know, those single base hits. So we basically built a profile of people who liked capital preservation and our, the way we did it, we were very clear on and we were, uh, our investors knew it and we knew it. In 2007, just at that time, this was when mortgages were starting to default. Ben Bernanke in the spring of 2007 said, you know, mortgage defaults are going to be contained within kind of the lower quality end of the range. And we knew there was no way that was going to happen. So, so you guys saw could the have been featured this. on the big short. For those I, that have the, no like pop culture. That is, uh, that was the time that that movie was set at this time, like this the kind of two year window. So we saw the beginnings of that. But what that nice. meant for us was interest rates were really low. And I remember this moment in the summer of 2007, uh, we bet that some company stocks, stock prices would go up and other ones we bet would go down. Those companies that were going down were generally in trouble or they just weren't all that, they, they were less attractive than, than the others. But because interest rates were low and there was so much money chasing deals, mm. every single day, the cover of the Wall Street Journal, the cover of Barron's, these publications were like, rumor is X company is gonna get bought out for a 50% premium. Like these terrible companies so that we were betting against things that would the stock prices would pop on nothing other than a rumor. And mm. after that happened a bunch of times, we we're like, this is insane. And the pinnacle moment was, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal put out a, a rumor that Apple was going to get bought out for something like $350 billion. Okay. And at that point, we're like, this is never going to happen, but the market is it's moving because of it. And so we just said, you know what? The market has lost its normal function in the way that we have decided to, to play. Like the mm. rules are changing almost. And so we went to our investors and said, we know that capital preservation is important to you. We are not going to chase this. We're going to cash, which means we're, we're going to be completely protected. We won't even charge you fees, but we want the right to invest when we think things are going to get better, like when we can participate again. And 90% plus of them said, everyone else is telling me everything's going to be fine. You guys have lost your touch, et cetera, et cetera. We'd like our money back. Oh my goodness. And so on 1231, 2007, we gave it all back. So $300 million worth of voting yep. per se was like, no, we believe these tab yep. relatively tabloid headlines. And you're like, yep. we'll, we'll go elsewhere. So you stuck to your, man, that is a testament to sticking to your values and principles. And, and I love that. Um, and I still have those investors in my pocket. So yeah. if you ever follow Alex Ramosi's stuff, you know, one of the things he says is the most successful people in the world, just listen to the timeframes they consider decisions to be made in. Mm. If you're like, what is the decision for today? The right decision at that point was let's keep making seven figures in fees. And, you know, who cares what happens? 
And that, that but if you look at that decision over frames. decades, I now yeah. still have those relationships and I can now call on, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of investment if, and those people trust me implicitly. So I bring well, deals, et cetera, et cetera. One of the core values of unimpeachable character, yours is like unimpeachable principles. Literally. I mean, you could have, you know, kept trying to yeah. gamble, but you're like, nah, this is what we're principal decision is based on. Yeah. And then um, another one is like, you know, goodwill. You might've lost like, that but you maintain the goodwill which ultimately is much more important it's like reputation right yeah once you lose it it's really hard to rebuild and you'll probably exchange the money or whatever you gained to restore it and so at some point like i just happened into a good decision at the time um but i would say for anyone it's like it's that's the test of character is basically what you do when no one's looking mm -hmm. now and from my from my personal experience um to your point of you know knowing knowing what is going on during the time that you're making a decision a more recent uh, analogy and I think you mentioned this was like the difference between Peloton and um Planet Fitness during COVID and how Peloton stock blew up and then dropped yeah. dramatically and then Planet Fitness kind of like grew because I mean that's just like the the net nature of their business model um when when we started the PE firm you know, growing up, I actually brought the suit and the tie and the the briefcase to a, a fourth grade presentation. So I, I shared some of that early pre-adolescent uh, audacity. My father and grandfather were real estate brokers. So, you know, take your kid to, to work day was me riding along doing showings for commercial real estate. Um, you know, I grew up with a grandfather that was in the military for 27 years and after, you know, crash landing a, a fighter jet, decided to get his MBA and had like 500 employees by 37. So that was like my, you know, role, like, oh, I'm just going to do what they did, you know, when I, yeah. when I grow up. And uh, during the time that I went to college was that same time period you're talking about exiting. Um, my grandfather was, I think, 76 and still like broker of record. And they, you know, it's a great business, but you can't make a market. So real estate became not attractive at all, right when I'm like entering the workforce, you know? So at the time I was like, ah, I'll, I'll pivot. I'll figure something out. Studied uh, philosophy, English literature. And, you know, here we are today, but in 2019, I'm like, oh, you know, I think there's a lot of appreciation going on. I have a feel for it. I did six years working for other people, felt pretty confident in my, I was like, I'm going to go into real estate, got my license. Our private equity firm originally was a real estate syndication. We had our first multifamily 216 doors under contract uh, for our first deal. Like, and I was like, all right, great. This will be my best year ever by a lot, you know, as the, as the transacting agent and then investing and owning it. And that was on March 13th of 2020. So <laughs> the, uh, timing. <laughs> yeah, the timing was such that COVID said, no, you're not. That's not happening. Yeah. So I went from being on top of the world to asking my mom to help me cover bills because yeah. I was like all in on the business and just super capital as aggressive as it could get. And I realized, and I, I, I don't know, you know, not to use too many cliches, but you know, high tide rises all ships. But when that tide goes out, you don't want to be naked or whatever that, how that goes. Exactly. I right. was, I was pretty much had a towel at that time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so we, we changed to private equity because my background was in building businesses profitably, like low budget, you know, predictable growth, profitable up to a certain point. I've worked with up to half a billion dollar businesses in the healthcare industry, which is my largest. 
that I did, you know, marketing consulting with, and I helped people with their retirement chase their dream passion business that maybe had a snowball's chance in health as success, but maybe not. So all different sizes. And I felt most comfortable with service-based businesses uh, doing regional markets that did like B2B mostly. And uh, we're trying to get from maybe a million all the way up to like 30 to 50 was like the, the niche. I was like, that's where we're at. So at the time I was on the job market, looked looked for a job because I was like, I don't know what to do to make money. I need to do it quickly. I've got mortgage and things like that. And uh 76 year old Vietnam veteran who started the, the business while he was in Vietnam, 53 year old business uh, doing distribution, kind of like manufacturing distribution. I told him my story uh, during the job interview. He offered if I wanted to buy the business, could not have sourced that deal without luck or complete like just random fate. And within a year, we I was sitting in his desk and I owned that business. So that's like my background. Wow. Um, just crazy. What a story. Yeah, it's, it's it was pretty wild. So then the first two years, um, really, really tough. Like did not buy any businesses switching to PE. I had to kind of Google search what is private equity. I'll learn all the finance. Didn't know, right? Because in a marketing and a builder, it just wasn't a finance guy. And uh, learned a lot about that. So when I, similar to, to your situation, when we got to 25 million assets under management, and now we're looking to raise all this capital instead of like bootstrapping it. And we're looking at all this debt and we're trying to do like international businesses and businesses like, like insurance, like you were talking about that I didn't have any understanding of because insurance is, is very unique to what it is mm -hmm. for the person that's, you know, used to my ICP and, my value prop, I'm like, it was way over my head. So that that plus my family starting and me realizing I can either choose to be a good family person and or be good at my job at the PE and those not being compatible with one another for how I was doing it. Um, so I what well, that whole story goes to say, Tim, that I totally relate to your sticking to your values, sticking to your spirit of genius. And I think sometimes the best play is just understanding when you're in over your head. Spot on. Exactly right. And I think, you know, I, I do believe in seasons of life and seasons in life, right? So just like you, you know, you you were in the private equity vein and then, you know, family changes a lot, you know, kind of cause you to look and say, you know, okay, not to take anything away from what was, and this is how I've felt about things and it, everything has a time. And so now the time has changed. And so what does this season of my life require? Uh, and some are, you know, full court press, especially early on, you know, you're acquiring skills, you're kind of figuring your way through the world. Um, you know, getting your financial footing, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, families change things. And, and the majority of the clients that I work with are uh, certainly married and, and have kids because it does fundamentally change your perspective on the world. And I believe in reverse engineering the outcome you're looking for. Okay. And so if when I'm, and I was 22 and single at a time, if I said the things that I say to my clients now to a 22 year old single guy, they're like, well, what would I do with the other 17 hours of my day? It's like, well, when you don't have all these other things, you're not going, you know, coaching sports and, you know, shuttling people around and being present and things like that. Mm -hmm. Your life is just different. Uh, and there's not, not good or bad, but my ideal kind of client that I work with values the idea of living a leveraged life and reverse engineering this, this, I hate the word balance, but, you know, mm -hmm. how do I achieve the things I want to achieve in life, primarily building a business, you know, guiding a team, 
you know, achieving the outcome that I want without fully sacrificing this kind of other part of me that is equally important. And some people call that work-life balance. Some people call it work-life integration. Some people call it my life has moved on and I can't do it. Like I was in a headspace at one point, like if I was going to be successful, I should remain single or should have. And I was like, yeah, that is like cancer to my head. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> because you're like, Oh, there's nothing I can do now. Like I've made this decision. I love being a family man. I love having, I love my kids. Like has life moved on? Like, has it moved past me? Is this a young man's game? And it was like, huh, there's wow. gotta be a different way to think about this in a way that is like, I can't just get rid of my entrepreneurial identity. It doesn't disappear that quickly. So how can I construct this idea of delivering all the promises that I've made while remaining kind of true to my sense of self? And I think well, that for me was a really important kind of transition point in my life. I think one of the things you you stated that's incredibly important for anyone listening, whether you're in business, have a family or don't, is defining what does it mean to be successful, yeah. right? So like, you and I, I'll, I'll lump that in, you know, our risk tolerance in our 20s, unlimited personal guarantee when it's just you and you may or may not have much to your name. Oh, yeah, whatever. Bet the farm on it. But when you have a child that their life is drastically affected by if, you know, risk turns sour, which on a long enough timeline, it it does it, it on a long enough timeline, risk will knock on your door and collect. Yeah. I, that's my belief. Um, I was like, there's no reality in which I could be both successful and risk my child's financial future. So not doing that. Um, and I'm sure, and I really love the way that you described like some of the activities, like, you know, being present, shuttling your kids around and, and you know, coaching sports. That to me is success to now. And I don't think 10 years ago, that's how I would have, would have defined it. Yeah. And I, I, I the, the pivotal point for me, Russ, was I put out a statement and it is black and white. It's on my Facebook profile and it states my intentions. So I publicly put out and said, here's who I am. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I like doing. Here's what feeds me. And here is what I am building. And here are the terms on which I am building that. I want to build a certain size business. I want to do it in this way. I'm going to structure my days this way. Here's what I'm willing to accept. And here's what I'm unwilling to accept. Here are my limits. So you made a term uh, sheet or an LOI for the deal of your life. Because I believe that we live in a direct response world right now, which is like this, this economy of attention is mm -hmm. who can say the most outlandish thing to, to get your, to get eyeballs. I personally believe, and, and you mentioned kind of risk knocks on your door given a long enough time period. I believe that the, the on a long enough time period, uh, the the shallow hype voices are going to go away because the market will find out who's real and who's not. And the foundation on which the future will be built is around intention. So instead of me trying to sell you a guarantee or sell you an offer, it's like, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to build. And if that resonates with you, it goes across everything. It's not a specific product. It's not a specific approach. It's not a, you know, if you, you know, here's how to make $10,000 in 10 minutes. You know, I think those offers are going right. to go by the wayside. Uh, and so it, the only thing that's left is who you are and what you believe in. And every one of the people that I've, I've been fortunate to work with have said in some way, shape or form, um, I work with you, not because of what you know, it's because of who you are. 
And I think that's critically important for anyone who's trying to build a business uh, and build a brand and, and longevity is around, you have to know kind of, you have to, you have to state your intentions because people will be drawn to that. I am taking notes. So that, that makes me think of a quote that I, I hold near and dear. Um, as a philosophy student, I didn't even realize I had this family member until like much, much later in my life. Um, my grandfather went to the U.S. Naval Academy and his brother did. And I guess his second cousin did too, uh, James Stockdale from Good to Great. So really? Yeah. Yep. Wow. So so my grandfather's cousin, I guess the Stockdales got off the boat and all the families got farmland and went west. Uh, James's was on the rural Illinois and mine was rural Iowa like across the border. And that's kind of what happened. And I guess they all had the fascination of stop stopping farming and start flying jets. So um, the Stockdale paradox is kind of near and dear to me, which is uh, retain faith that you'll prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, while at the same time confront the most brutal facts of your current realities and spending seven and a half years in the Hanoi hotel uh, and being the highest ranking military official as a POW and also being the first person to drop uh, a bomb in Vietnam in that kind of plane crash. I guess, you know, I'm, there's a recurring theme. I probably shouldn't fly any planes because people <laughs> with Stockdale usually crash them and end up in bad spots. Um but he said the people that the POWs that made it or did not break were the ones that did not, that were not optimistic. They were like, oh, we'll be out of here by Christmas. And then Christmas comes like, oh, shoot, we're still here. They were the ones that were more, I don't want to say pessimistic, but more realistic. Be like, all right, yeah. we made it through today. We didn't crack. Let's do it again tomorrow. Um, yeah. So in that in that situation, it's it's maintaining a healthy optimism where it's like you just maintain integrity in stressful times. And then uh, I, what I get from that is like, you know, healthy masculinity, healthy stoicism of, hey, as long as I'm telling the truth, let the truth be what it is. And I'm just going to keep telling the truth. Um, I'm not going to say I'm the world's best at anything. I'm not going to guarantee you. I had a client ask me, hey, do you think that if we do this Google ad campaign, I'll be able to afford to buy this house in Florida in cash? I'm like, I'm not, I'm never going to guarantee that. I'm not going to guarantee any of that ever but it'll increase the likelihood that your financial dreams will come true. Uh, and that's kind of how I respond to those kinds of, you know, guarantee questions. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it gets back to like the John Wooden, you know, famous coach of UCLA, uh, yeah. which is like, you couldn't show up to basketball practice and go today. We're going to practice winning. In so, order to win, you practice the behaviors. And I mm -hmm. think in general, the more behavior focused you can be number one, it's more controllable. Yes. But number two, it is the thing that allows people, you know, that I think successful people are just more action driven and action focused than outcome driven. Like you can't fire up your laptop and say, today I'm going to spend eight hours just being a millionaire. <laughs> it's like you can watch as many YouTube videos as you want. I will guarantee that path will not get you to where you want to go. It's the same reason. I mean, I've, I've, I'm sure lots of folks have watched, you know, Gary Vee, you know, a lot of his content. And it's like, I want to be a millionaire by December. It's like, by saying that you are guaranteed, I will guarantee you will not get there because that is the mindset of that will, you know, that, that doesn't tr uh, translate to the outcome you're looking for. So it's the person that says, I don't know what's going to happen a year from now, but I know if I get up at five o'clock this morning, I know if I work out, I know if I eat well, I know if I read a book, you know, that I will eventually those things will compound. 
And I think we, we far underestimate the compound interest, the compound effect of behavior. And that's you know, the, the kind of macro patience, micro speed concept that Gary Vee talks about is, is some version of that, which is be fast with your actions and kind of be slow or agnostic about your long-term, you know, the long-term macro picture. Because if you do the actions today, the and I'm, I just believe in, in testing, because the faster you get data points, the more you know, the more you know, the better you'll be. Uh, I just think we spend too much time thinking and philosophy, you know, and, and kind of being in theory. And it's like, just go to market. I don't need you to build a product for three years and then go take, like, if we build it, they will come. It's like, take the the duct tape and chewing gum version and take mm -hmm. it out to someone you think it can be valuable for and see what they say. And if they buy it, great. The next person, double the price and see what they say. Mm -hmm. And after that, make a couple of sales, make the product a little bit better, lather, rinse, repeat, do that every day on a five-day cycle for the next year. And I will guarantee you'll be a millionaire, but you actually have to do the work. The hard part is everything in between. <laughs> it's it's the because plan if, you and the result. If, if you think of the no as a failure, Mm -hmm. then it's stopped. That is an impediment on the way to the thing that you want. If you are focused on the action, and I, I've, I've put this out publicly, I believe the only metric that matters in the first kind of, definitely the first three to six months of a new business is the number of offers made. Revenue doesn't matter. All the other things don't matter. How many times did you ask someone to buy something and get an answer? And if you actually ask anyone who's launching a business that's struggling, if, they, if you ask them that question, I will guarantee you there's a direct correlation between the ones that are gaining momentum and the ones that are stalled. The ones that are stalled are thinking about what offer to make and thinking about the landing page and thinking about how to make the product better and thinking and thinking and thinking. The other ones are out just getting over the fear of getting the no. And the no is a data point. It's not a rejection of your identity. I mean, using a sports coaching analogy, John Wooden famously stated that his first uh, lesson of practices were how to tie your shoes and pull your socks up the whole way. And um, I, I I coach sports now. I've been in sports of my choice. I was not very coordinated, but somehow I think a, a valuable trait to have in entrepreneurship is tough. If you're going to be dumb, you better be tough or persistent. So you can't see my yeah. ears, but I've got pretty developed cauliflower ear, wrestled uh, all the way through college, was never like the, the world's best, but felt like I was a pretty good team player. Teams had a lot of success and then uh, had a brief stint in cage fighting and been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu the last 10 years. And you kind of quickly realize that the people that get black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu were the ones that just never quit. Uh, they just kept showing up. And um, the people that got really, really good at wrestling um, did the same activity repeatedly daily for a very long period of time. Um, they're out there. Of course there's outliers, but consistently that's what happens. So, you know, I coach uh, wrestling for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So like takedown grappling, that's kind of yep. my sphere of genius. And the first thing lesson I taught someone was how do you move your feet? Like, like, do you cross your, your feet when you move? Okay. If so, don't do that. Um, and, and here's some mental models to do such a thing. And people are kind of like, what the heck? This doesn't make sense. And now I've been doing this program for two months and you see people move entirely differently with a lot more confidence, a lot more grace, like almost like the coach, I feel like I'm going to dance class. I'm like, good. That's how I want you to feel. That it's working. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to sports, you mentioned 
baseball, hitting singles for your investment philosophy. Uh, you mentioned basketball with John Wooden. What sports do you coach, play? Uh, which ones do you analogize or make analogy with business the most? Yeah, so uh, I was a rower in high school and college. I was a division one uh, college athlete. And so that's how mm -hmm. my wife and I met. Uh, and I'll come back to that one in a second. But right now I, I coach uh, my daughter's lacrosse team. I grew up playing lacrosse uh, and I absolutely love it. So I coach, uh, I coach their team. But uh, the rowing analogy is an interesting one. Uh, and the, the reason why is uh, people are familiar with kind of the indoor rowing machine that you'll see at the gym. Uh, Concept mm -hmm. 2 is the most uh, kind of common version. The person when I was growing up that was the fast, had the fastest time for a certain distance was a uh, Norwegian lumberjack. He was like 300 pounds of solid muscle. And wow. he would pull on, they call it an ergometer, the erg, and with the most amazing power you will that I had ever seen. And he set records and things like that. He won like the kind of indoor championships and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now you put that person and com compare it to rowers are not in, you know, they're not really indoors. They're out on the water. Mm -hmm. The difference being when you're in a boat, you have to have your power has to compensate for your weight. Okay. You have to carry yourself like plus add to the speed of the boat. So if you took that 300 pound guy as strong as he was, his power to weight ratio would have probably made him suboptimal or subpar in that world. And the reason why that has always stuck with me is because in any kind of business venture, I look at it as to say, not only do I have to carry my own weight, but I have to contribute. Mm. And that kind of power to weight ratio concept is something that I think if it is a mindset that if you adopt to say, how can I kind of maximize my output, you will find that people will pay you more and you will solve bigger and bigger problems, which means you will make the money you want, have the choices you want and the optionality and all of those things. I think the converse is what pe gets people stuck. If you go to work thinking, I, they, I'm here for a paycheck, they should pay me for showing up, you are not delivering for your weight. Your power to weight ratio is limiting your your chance of success. And so I think about that quite a bit. It's it is a quote I like. It's like do more than what you're paid for so that you get paid for more than you do later. It's that's when you yeah. compound on a long enough timeline. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, and, and so I, I look at that and then you know, the idea of coaches has been instrumental in my life. Um I somebody asked me last week, you know, what's what's a piece of advice I would give to my 18-year-old self? And I would seek out as many mentors as I possibly can. And I don't think I did a good enough job with that simply because take, take the cost side away, whether you have to pay for a mastermind or pay to get into a room or what have you, the idea of like return on investment for a mentor, even if you make a few bad choices in the beginning will remain astronomical because one thing that they say or one experience or one person you know can literally change the course of everything. And so I've set out right now, kind of this season of my career is to take 20 years of experience, all the mistakes made, all the lessons learned and package them in a way, I call it a kind of a co-creation dynamic, which is mm -hmm. I have been the number two to multiple billionaires at this point. 
I have zero interest in being having my name in lights. So I have set out to find a way to deliver uh, my headline on my website says, I make founders dreams come true. And I believe that all of the lessons that I've learned are now being packaged in a way that allows people to condense time and avoid the foreseeable mistakes so that you effectively take your foot off the brake. And by using time-tested and, and clearly successful strategies and implementing those for people who just kind of haven't had that level of experience or exposure yet has been fundamentally you know, life-changing for, for the folks that, that are in my universe. And, and it's what gets me up in the morning. It feeds me, my zone of genius is, is product. And from zero to $3 million a year in revenue, it's all about product. It is really? the thing that matters more than so. Anything. So you're looking for zero to three mil product founders? Yeah. So service-based businesses, anything with a recurring revenue component is really my sweet spot because okay. I believe that we make a you make a sale to get a customer, not get a customer to make a sale. That first sell sale is is just them entering your world. So for example, like a gym membership mm -hmm. is a recurring revenue. A SaaS business, like a software business, is a single sale. And then we actually have to deliver and over-deliver on our value proposition so that we don't have people cancel. Like I like the idea of not just selling somebody something once because I think mm. anyone can sell somebody something. Once. So life, lifetime value of the customer, you, you look at just enriching the lifetime value of the customer. You don't want to have like a quick churn because for marketing agencies, right? So like a, a service business, like a marketing agency service. What we had found in that, in that world was we may have landed 20 new customers, but if you lose 21, you're still losing money. So once you do the triage of like stop the bleeding, increase retention and decrease churn, both with employees and with customers, because it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Now you can actually become more profitable. That sort of philosophy. Interesting. So we, we install two systems. One is a profitable acquisition system. Mm -hmm. So if you take your cost to acquire a new customer, we, we put in place a process where you get all the money back. In an ideal case, it's one of the kind of metrics that I look at, is if you spend $100 on Facebook ads and you drive somebody to a call uh, and you convert a certain number of those calls, how do we make front-end cash, that first buying decision, allow us to get our $100 back? So we turn an expense, a variable expense, into a consistent profit center. And now we have the customer. Now, how do we do exactly what you just said? How do we reduce churn, which is call it patching up any any holes in the bucket. So as we're filling it with water, we're keeping as much in there as possible. Um, and then, so that requires what other problems do we need to solve? So now that we have the customer, is it a longevity thing? Where else are they going? What else can we do? How do we make ourselves infinitely more valuable over the course of time so they never want to leave? And that is I'm all a, of a product decision. That's I'm going to- strategy. I, I could probably pick your brain on that the detail of business for far longer than we have time allotted. Um, and maybe someday I'll get to do that. That'd be great. Um, there's two things that I have left that I really want to ask you and I'll try and get them done in the next 10 minutes. Um, the first is, and I, and I feel compelled to ask this. I just listened to um, Alex Ramosi's uh, podcast episode 98, which was, I remember where he talked about the pain in which it took for Jim launch to get to the point where I think he was either taking it to the next, I think he had an event the next day and it was like a late night, like 
very vulnerable. Hey, like this might seem glamorous and this might like on the outside make it seem like I'm successful, but I failed a lot and it was very lonely and it, and it was hard. And by hard, it meant like, um, lots of pain and suffering to get to this point and discussed his, his journey to get there. And I mean, for people that have been playing the game of entrepreneurship for long enough, I think they all have their, their own pain type stories that are like that. Like, I don't know which one I would even share if I had to choose one, it would be a, a series of them. Right. Um, but for you, what are some of the, the major, uh, epiphanies that you had through maybe not the successes, but the, the challenges or the pain points of your career that shaped your perspective, you know, now that you, that you unbeknownst to you when you were 19 or in your mid twenties, you know, you wouldn't have foreseen that that would have been the painful circumstance, but now, you know, with experience you do. There are many, uh, but I'll <laughs> kind of give you the top two that come to mind. Uh, the first one was uh, I remember very early on. So we were building a, a multi-unit gym chain uh, that we grew to seven figures. But when we were getting that started, my ego was operating unchecked. And what I mean by that is we started one, we opened one club. And then for me, I had this like unquenchable uncontrollable desire to open as many clubs as I could to show people how smart I was. Mm. And what that did was, and the, the image that I have to this day that is burned in my head is I remember it was 1.36 in the morning. I was wide awake, sweating. My wife was sleeping next to me and I was staring up at the ceiling fan over our bed. And all I could think of was no one knows just how screwed we are. And that feeling was one that caused me to really change how I viewed risk and what I was willing to do. And it forced me to basically come to terms with my own self to say, what you're doing right now is not working. You got to figure out why. And that was related to a couple of months later, I had a, a manager in one of our, our facilities and I give so much credit to her to this day. We came, I came in and was just kind of chatting with her and she sat me down and looked me dead in the eye and effectively fired me. And she said, I need you to leave me alone. You hired me to do this. Every time you come in here, you change something and I, can, I, can, I can't get my bearings. I need you to just leave. And I give her so much credit because... At that time, I was still operating from this position of, I need to show I'm the smartest guy or I'm constantly tweaking and all that kind of stuff. Like when you're a, a vision guy like or a vision person, you're always like, can I just do this a little bit better? And why don't we change the offer? And why don't we do, she's like, I can't do anything. I can't train my team. I can't do anything. I need you to just leave. And it was the best decision we made. And we went on from to go from six figures to multiple seven figures uh, uh, at, at that point. So I look at all of that to say, what are the painful things? They're painful things that the universe or the world has kind of come back and probably give me a nice shove back into like, you really got to stay, you know, stick to your knitting, stay in your lane. But equally, I have done some amazing things based on betting on myself. And so mm -hmm. I've just kind of triangulated those two together and said, uh, I think counter to what we, we learn as kids, uh, I'm doubling down on my strengths. I don't really care about my weaknesses as long as I know what they are. And in the same vein, you didn't take that rejection personally. You're just like, oh, 
I need to change my behavior because sometimes my behavior, while a lot of good things are because of what I'm doing, there are also times where things that are undesirable are because of what I'm doing or what have you. Exactly right. No, that's a a really healthy way I can wholly relate. Um, The last question I had, I know we have short time, Tim, is GPS. Uh, I needed to ask you about GPS. So you had a podcast about that. Um, One of the things I felt listening to your podcast while I'm mowing the lawn is like, holy crap, this, uh, the idea of entrepreneur isolation and, and stalling again, I'm one year into the business. Um, My business goal and my business plan, uh, I've doubted it at least once a month uh, for the last 12 months. And you know some of the the challenges that have been the most difficult and not able to be foreseen were um, within 60 days my godmother, so my closest aunt, my grandmother, who's older but my closest non-mother female figure, and my mother all died, and I tore my ACL so I couldn't walk, and I had a newborn child in that time period. While I'm trying to grow a business, after just going through a business partner breakup exit, where we're like, hey, we're going to go our separate ways. I'm out. You guys do your thing, like amicable, fine, but like reorienting myself. So that whole, um, you know, that whole experience from a uh, putting your back against the wall and needing to grow uh, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it had to be, but also like, you know, you still signed up to be a self-funded entrepreneur. Um, You know, your concept of GPS can you can you touch on that and then any tips you have for someone that's either me or like me that's within their first year that had some unforeseen things happen that kind of disoriented how would you reorient i know it's a yeah. lot for 120 seconds so yeah no uh, so uh, entrepreneur isolation is something i think is it's obviously pervasive it's lonely at the top when you're doing something that nobody else is doing i think the idea of how do you, you, know, you, you surround yourself with people that are arguably want to support you. Um, and there's longer than we can go into now, but the idea of like, most of us go to relatives and people right around us. The reality is 99% of people don't know what an entrepreneur mindset actually looks like. And so they try to do things like encourage you, but sometimes that's not the right encouragement or they'll even say like, shouldn't you just go get a job? Cause that mm-hmm. sounds, you know, safer, but it's the wrong, it's kind of the wrong approach. Right. So I, entrepreneur isolation is something that I think finding a mentor or finding another group uh, or, or support system is something that is critical. So what is your kind of entrepreneurial support system is something I talk about. Um, the concept of GPS, it stands for goal plan support. So the idea is what is your goal clearly defined? What is the plan to get there? And what support do you need slash where are the ways that this can go wrong? So my goal is to have a front-end offer that is sellable. My plan is to try three different price points and to run you know, a one-day webinar or one-day uh, VIP day to see what people's responses are. And the support I need is I don't know how to make a landing page. So I need to find someone to do that. That's all in summary saying what my recommendation would be to anyone is to find a co-creative partner like myself or, or others, call it a mastermind group, call it a mentor, someone to help give you the confidence, give you the guidance that you need. And sometimes it's just clarifying kind of what you're doing is the right thing to do. Um, And ultimately, one of the biggest benefits of having someone like that in your corner is they will lend their confidence in you 
mm. in those times of struggle. Mm. So if you find yourself in the like, my energy is low, everything's falling apart, find someone who can look from outside the bottle because you can't read the label from inside the bottle. Find yeah. someone outside to say, you know what, Russ, I can't change what's going on right now, but this is a blip. Do you still want to get to where you want to go? Here's what we can do. Here's what we know, you know, and and proceed from there. So I think I just think having someone in that type of a relationship is critically important for any entrepreneur. Wow. And you did that all within two minutes. So kudos to you, man. Um, I'll wrap this up for now. Tim, it was an incredible pleasure to interview you. Hopefully we can reconnect again sometime soon. Um, for those that want to get in uh, to follow Tim or support him, reach out to go to timcalise.com. You can find him on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, most places. You support his podcast called Leveling the Field. Tim, it was a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, all right, Thunderstock show out.